When I was in seminary, a friend of mine and I visited a local Pentecostal church. It was a wonderful experience. The first thing I noticed was the diversity of the congregation. All kinds of ages and ethnicities were represented. I was also immediately struck by their hospitality. As soon as we arrived at the door, multiple people came up and greeted us. When we were in the sanctuary, people around us in the pews introduced themselves to us and prayed with us. But what was especially remarkable was the praise. I don't remember how many songs we sung that day, but I know that the singing lasted for at least 45 minutes. And people weren't just singing, people were dancing. They were getting up from their seats, going out into the aisles, jumping up and down, grabbing each other, sometimes by the hand or by the arm and twirling around. And this was a bit unusual for me and my friends. We were both Anglicans, and so we were accustomed to a little bit quieter, calmer, maybe more reverential atmosphere in worship. Not all this dancing and enthusiasm. Afterwards, after I attended that service and I was reflecting on it, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe they aren't the exception. Maybe we were. Dancing may not be something that we often associate with Anglican worship, but actually in many countries around the world, Anglican Christians can be just as enthusiastic and just as footloose in their worship is that Pentecostal church that my friend and I visited. And if you're familiar with the life of King David, you might remember a time when David danced as well. The story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. It happened when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to Jerusalem for the first time in 20 years. And David was so excited that he took off his royal clothes and he put on a simple priest garment, an ephod, and he danced, we're told, with all his might in public as an act of praise. And if you remember, if you know the story that I'm talking about, you may also remember that David's wife was not at all happy with this scene of him dancing. She later told him that he was acting ridiculous, that he was not at all behaving like a king, that what he was doing was entirely unbecoming of who he was. But the Bible says that David did the right thing. David did exactly what he should have done in that situation, exactly what was fitting for the occasion. It's a fascinating story. David, this man who wrote more psalms in the Psalter than anyone else, this was his moment of highest and purest praise. If you want to know what it means to praise, just think of that image of David dancing down the street, celebrating publicly before everyone with all his might, unable to control his enthusiasm. But David didn't just dance that day. He also sang. In fact, he sang the words of a psalm. First Chronicles chapter 16 records it for us. On the day that David danced, he and all those are with him 
saying the words of Psalm 96. And that's what we're going to look at in this section. Psalm 96, this psalm of praise that David and the people sang on the day that the ark was brought back into Jerusalem. Now, like a lot of praise psalms, Psalm 96 contains two key elements. First, we find a summons or a call to praise. And then the reason for praise is given. And both of these elements contain very important lessons for us. And so let's start off with looking at this summons to praise. In our last session, I mentioned that some praise psalms begin with a simple and very direct summons or call to praise. Like the last five psalms, beginning with Psalm 146, all of which start with the word hallelujah, praise the Lord. And Psalm 96, it's pretty similar in that regard. The opening words of the psalm are an immediate and a direct call to sing and praise to the Lord. Here's what we read in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. But in this psalm, the summons to praise doesn't just occur one time. It's not just in verse 1. It occurs three separate times. One summons is in verses 1 through 3, followed by reasons to praise. And then again, beginning in verse 7, where we read, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And that goes on for several verses, followed up once again with a statement about reason to praise. And then a third time, we find another new summons to praise that begins with verse 11. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. So what do we learn from these three series of summons? What do they teach us about praise? Well, I think the first and most obvious thing we learn is that praise is not optional. Praise is a duty. And many Christians today think of praise as something you do because, because it's personally beneficial or it's meaningful. If you don't believe me, just ask people why it is that they attend worship. More often than not, in my experience, the response will highlight a personal benefit that that person receives. They attend worship, people say, because maybe they enjoy the worship or because it helps them prepare for the week ahead, or because they want their kids in church, or because they get a lot out of the sermons. And all of that makes sense. These are indeed beneficial effects of going to worship. But that's very different from the summons to praise that we find in this psalm. Psalm 96 doesn't suggest that we should participate in praise of God because, after all, it benefits us. This psalm, just like many other psalms, teaches us to think of praise not as something that we should do. It says that praise is something we must do. And you can see that if you pay attention to the, to the verbal tense of the words that are used to summon us to praise in this song. Sing, declare, ascribe, worship. They're all given as imperatives. 
They're all commands. So that's the first lesson. Praise isn't optional. Praise isn't something we do if and when it benefits us. Praise is a duty. And the second lesson is this. Praise is public. Who is the audience of praise in this psalm? Your first response might be, well, God. God's the audience of praise. And that's true. God is the one to whom this praise is directed. You can see it right there in the opening line, sing to the Lord. And then again in verses 7 and 8, ascribe to the Lord. So yes, God is the audience. But I don't know whether you noticed, but God is not the only audience. Look, for instance, at the summons to praise in verse 3. Declare the Lord's glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. And this verse tells us that even though praise is directed to God, it isn't a private affair. It is meant to be overheard by others, the nations, the peoples. You see this again in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And this isn't a unique feature of Psalm 96. It is characteristic of praise in the Psalms. As the Anglican theologians, David Ford and Daniel Hardy put it, a hallmark of the experience of praising God is that it is intrinsically linked with other people. The right place for it is always alongside other people before God. There is always an inextricable social dimension to praising God. Uh, this is true of praise as we find it in the Old Testament and the life of Israel. And it's also true in the New Testament. Christians are not only commanded to give praise, they're commanded to do it publicly and to do it as a group. So that's the second lesson we learn from the summons to praise in this psalm. And it's closely connected to a third lesson, which is this. Praise is evangelistic. A number of years ago, the rector of a church I attended was a man named Lyle Dorset. And Lyle had a wonderful gift for evangelism. He was always telling people about Jesus and inviting them into the faith. And he was a, Lyle was a great admirer of some of the leading evangelists from the last couple hundred years. In fact, he was such an admirer he was a historian and he'd actually written biographies of several of them, people like Billy Sunday and A.W. Tozer and D.L. Moody. And Lyle often said something about evangelism that seemed to me rather strange, at least the first time I heard it. He used to say that the most evangelistic thing you could do was bring a person to church and let them experience the worship in the liturgy. And that seemed a bit odd to me, but the more I thought about it, the more I recognized how true it is. Because the worship of the church is a kind of public declaration, both of the nature of God and of all his wondrous acts. Anytime we publicly praise God, we are at one in the same time declaring the good news of who God is and what He has done. 
In fact, if you look at the Greek translation of Psalm 96, the Greek translation that was done uh, several hundred years before the life of Jesus, the word that is used in verse 2 to translate the phrase, tell of his salvation, as we have it in English, it's the word euangelizo, or the word evangelize. It's the exact same Greek word that's used in the New Testament to refer to the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the word for telling the gospel. So you see, praise, praise isn't an option, it's a duty. And praise isn't just a private affair, it must be public. And as a public act, praise is the announcement of the good news, the gospel of who God is and what he has done. All of those who hear our praises should hear that proclamation. And all of that's contained in this summons to praise in this Psalm. Psalm 96 doesn't just summon us to praise though. It also gives us a reason to praise. Now, there actually are in fact multiple reasons for praise given in this Psalm. But I'd like to focus on one in particular. It's the pronouncement that's made in verse 10, a pronouncement that's really a mere two words in Hebrew, Yahweh Malach, and in English, three words, the Lord reigns. Now, this same phrase is repeated as the opening proclamation in two more praise psalms that come right after Psalm 96. Psalm 97, for instance, begins, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. And then Psalm 99, again, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. The Lord reigns, the Lord is king. But why is this a reason for praise? Americans of all people know that the mere announcement of a king is not a cause for celebration. Our country was founded upon the recognition that kings can be tyrannical, that the rule of a king can lead, as Thomas Jefferson said, to a long train of abuses and usurpations designed to reduce subjects to the condition of despotism. So why then should we rejoice at the announcement that there is a reigning king? Now, in order, in order to understand why Psalm 96 finds this to be such good news, such a cause for joy, we need to pay attention to what is said in the final stanza. Here's what we read in the final stanza of Psalm 96. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. In the last session, you may remember that I raised the question of how it is possible to praise amidst the suffering and pain of life. Whereas Psalm 137 so memorably puts it, how can we sing a song of the Lord in a strange land? Well, that's an important question. And, you know, it's one reason why some people criticize the Christian emphasis on praise or our attitude about praise, because it seems to be sometimes like a dishonest denial 
of the reality of the fact that there is ongoing pain and suffering and injustice. And that's why we need to pay attention to this Psalm, Psalm 96. Because the reason for praise here isn't just that the Lord is King. The reason for praise is that the Lord is just because He is the King who in His justice will come. And when He comes, we are told, He will judge the world in righteousness. Or as the Bible scholar N.T. Wright likes to say, He will put the world to rights. That's the good news of Psalm 96. Not that we should rejoice despite the presence of evil and injustice, but that God, the one who is the true king, the reigning Lord, that he will not leave us alone in our misery. The Lord will come, and when he comes, he will set all things right. So sing to the Lord, dance like David danced, proclaim to the nations the good news that God is king, that he is the one who comes, and that he will make all things right.